Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. It's a new year and a fresh start for the show. I'm in the process of setting up a new studio and making some other changes to the show going forward. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this extended audio version taken from my first video on my YouTube channel, Dark Chronicles. And now, on with the show. Erin Valenti was one of those people who seemed to have it all. She was brilliant, beautiful, and wealthy. She was the founder and executive director of her own Silicon Valley tech firm, Tinker Ventures, as well as a former venture capitalist who headed a fund of up to $20 billion. By all accounts, Erin Valenti was a rising star in Silicon Valley, which made it all the more shocking when in October 2019, Erin Valenti vanished. Among her many accomplishments, Erin Valenti earned a partnership with a neural interface startup called Control Labs, a company that had just been acquired by Facebook for somewhere between $500 million to $1 billion. This was a company that was on the cutting edge of technology, creating wearable wristbands that could allow users to control computers with their minds. On October 1, 2019, Erin was scheduled to fly from Salt Lake City to Orange County, to attend a seminar. She was supposed to stay there for two days and travel to Silicon Valley to meet up with some former colleagues, then catch a return flight back to Salt Lake City on October 7th to attend the Women Tech Awards, where she was due to receive a prestigious award. But then on October 7th, things took a bizarre turn. Shortly after having dinner with a friend, Erin phoned her mother to let her know she had just finished eating and was driving to the airport. But strangely, at first Erin told her mother that she couldn't find her car. It was not where she remembered parking it. Erin sounded anxious, but a few minutes later she told her mother she found it and not to worry. But as Erin continued to talk, she became more agitated and began mumbling incoherently. She then said several strange things to her mother, including how she had just refueled her car ten minutes earlier. But immediately after, she also said she had run out of gas and probably wouldn't be able to reach the airport. As her daughter spoke frantically, Aaron's mother grew increasingly concerned. So she phoned Aaron's husband, Harrison Weinstein, and told him he needed to contact her immediately. Over the next few hours, Aaron continued talking to her mother and her husband, both of whom were becoming increasingly worried about the things Aaron was saying. Eventually, Aaron broke off all contact with him and Aaron refused to pick up the phone when they tried calling her back. Aaron Valenti never made it home that night. Over the next five days, police conducted an extensive search for her. Then on October 12th, Aaron's rental car was found nearby with her lifeless body in the back seat. 
This was especially puzzling because Aaron's car was parked only about four blocks from where her last phone call came from. There was no explanation why it took the police so long to find her vehicle parked on a busy street, in the middle of a crowded suburb, just a few streets over from where she vanished. Even stranger still, the autopsy report could find no physical cause for Aaron's death. She appeared to be healthy, and she had no drugs in her system, nor did there appear to be any other reason she lost her life. Later on, the autopsy report would list Aaron's cause of death as the result of an unexplained manic episode. It's impossible to say exactly what Aaron Valenti's mental state was in her final days, or what brought about her untimely death. But there is one chilling clue that Aaron told her mother at the end of her final phone call. The last words Aaron ever spoke to her family opened up a disturbing possibility. You see, right before hanging up for the last time, Aaron Valenti, the computer company executive, said, It's all a game. It's a thought experiment. We're in the Matrix. I'm Nate Hale, and it's time for you to choose to take the red pill or the blue pill. And this is The Conspirators. In 2003, philosopher Nick Bostrom from Oxford University published an influential paper that asked the question, is this reality? This is a question that many great thinkers throughout the centuries have pondered. Both the ancient Hindus and the Greeks put forth the possibility that life is but a dream. The Greek philosophers Pythagoras and Heraclitus believed that things were made of numbers. Whereas today we would describe physical objects as being made up of atoms, those two thought of all things around them being made up of twos, threes, and so on. Heraclitus in particular thought that things changed endlessly. He once said that no man can step into the same river twice. Plato later rephrased this into, everything changes and nothing stays still. You cannot step twice into the same stream. But Plato didn't fully agree with Pythagoras and Heraclitus. He was a rationalist, not an empiricist. Meaning that he believed that there were certain truths about the universe that can be known by the mind alone. And he believed that we could use our brains to search beyond the world of the senses and open the doorway to the real reality. Flash forward to today and Nick Bostrom's paper adds a new modern spin to this idea. This is the possibility that everything we think is real is actually a highly advanced computer simulation, just like in the movie The Matrix. But Bostrom's thought experiment is a lot different than the future presented in The Matrix. He doesn't propose that evil machines in the future are using people as human batteries. Rather, Bostrom proposes that if we are living in a simulation, then one of three possibilities must be true. This is something he refers to as the simulation trilemma. This trilemma states that, one, the human species is very likely to go extinct before ever reaching a post-human stage. Two, any post-human civilization is extremely likely to run a significant number of simulations of their evolutionary history, or variations thereof. And three, we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. What this all boils down to is that Bostrom puts forth the possibility that there is a significant chance that humans may one day reach what he describes as a post-human stage, during which our post-human descendants might want to run what he calls ancestor simulations. 
This is the idea that some distant future generation might be running an advanced computer program that simulates what life was like and what we think of as the modern day. But in actuality, what we are experiencing is their distant past. And that all of us are just ones and zeros running inside some insanely powerful supercomputer. Taking this idea a step farther, Bostrom posits that such a super-advanced civilization would likely want to run many such simulations, and that inside those simulations would be computers running their own simulations, on and on down the line. Both Elon Musk and Neil deGrasse Tyson have gone on record saying that it's possible we are living in a simulation, although Musk appears to be way more into the idea. He believes the chances that the universe we are living in is the base reality stands somewhere around one in a billion. Neil deGrasse Tyson, on the other hand, hedges his bets and sets those odds closer to 50-50. Of course, Musk has said a lot of weird stuff about Mars and other technology, and at the same time he seems to be having difficulty running Twitter or X or whatever the heck you want to call it. So maybe we should just take his word with a grain of salt. But if what all these people are suggesting is true, then that would mean that as you work your way up the chain, there must be some sort of base reality where it all begins. But if that's the case, then what is in that base reality? Or rather, who? Nick Bostrom imagines a technologically advanced civilization that possesses immense computing power at a level beyond anything in what we think of as existence today. Based on our current technology in order to generate an entire universe, such a computer would have to be gigantic, much bigger than anything we can imagine. But in order to figure out how such a task of such magnitude could be computed, we first need to look at modern video games. Video game programmers are able to create remarkably realistic-looking worlds in the latest video games. But in order to do so, the games that are being made require tremendous processing power to generate such realistic graphics. These graphics have gotten better by leaps and bounds since the days of Pong. Even still, no matter how immersive the game, programmers still need to build in rules and limits. When you see some far-off horizon in a video game, the details are often kept vague and indistinct. This is done not only because that's how objects at a distance appear in real life, but also because it limits the amount of processing power necessary to render such things. And when you think about it, the universe we live in has its own rules as well. It's a universally accepted law of physics that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light which would actually be a pretty good limit for some futuristic race to build into a simulation of life on Earth. That way, this would prevent us humans from ever reaching those faraway stars we see up in the sky. Therefore, it would make sense that there would be no need for the simulation we're living in to have to render those details either. Okay, but all this talk of living in a matrix is just a fun thought experiment, right? I mean, it makes for good science fiction, but there can't possibly be any evidence to support it. Is there? Well, actually, there is. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. About 2,300 years ago, a renowned Chinese philosopher named Zhang Zhi had a dream in which he became a butterfly flying among some flowers. But after he awoke, he had a terrifying question in his mind. Did he really wake up? Or was he actually a real butterfly who only dreamed he was a man? Simulation theory could account for these sort of mental gymnastics, just as it could also account for the existence of the soul. After all, if we are to believe that the soul never dies, then this could be just another sign that you're another player in a cosmic video game waiting for someone to hit the reset button. Here's another one. Have you ever experienced deja vu? That's the strange sensation you feel when you go someplace or experience something, only to feel like you've been there before. Legendary science fiction author Philip K. Dick thought he knew the answer to this. Dick was the author of such famous books as Minority Report, A Scanner Darkly, The Man in the High Castle, and of course, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the book that was made into Blade Runner. Toward the end of his life, Dick came to strongly believe that we are all living in a computer program simulation. Among the many things Dick spoke publicly about, he believed that deja vu was a sign that the computer program was glitching and resetting itself. Once again, this is something we see in video games as well. We all know that computer programs sometimes have glitches, and thus require patches and updates in order to correct the faulty code. Well, if we are living in a simulation, who is to say that whoever the simulation's programmers are, they don't occasionally need to patch this reality as well? You may have heard of the Mandela Effect. The Mandela Effect refers to a situation in which a large number of people believe that an event occurred when it did not. The term the Mandela Effect was originally coined by paranormal researcher Fiona Broom after she began encountering a number of people who had memories of the late Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. Only this didn't happen. Mandela actually passed away in 2013, several years after serving as the president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999. And yet, there remain large numbers of people who distinctly recall Mandela's funeral being televised nearly three decades before it really happened. And this isn't the only such Mandela Effect event people recall. Do you remember eating Jiffy peanut butter as a kid? Well, you didn't, because there's never been any such product. How about Curious George having a tail? Nope, he doesn't. Do you remember the Fruit of the Loom logo having a cornucopia? It doesn't either. And never did. What about Ed McMahon handing families giant checks for Publishers Clearinghouse on TV? Even though you might strongly recall McMahon doing this, he never did. In fact, he was never a spokesman for that company. Instead, he worked for American Family Publishers. One in particular that messes with my head is in the James Bond movie Moonraker. There's a scene where the villain Jaws, who has a mouth full of metal teeth, meets a girl and instantly falls head over heels in love when she smiles at him. In my memory, I'm positive that girl had braces when she smiled at him. I mean, it makes sense, right? As far as lame setups for humor go, but the thing is, she didn't and never did. Or how about that famous line Darth Vader says in The Empire Strikes Back, Luke, I am your father. Except, Darth Vader never said this either. The real line is, no. I am your father. There are hundreds of these Mandela Effect examples I can list. The most common explanation is that these are all just examples of our very human and very fallible memories. 
Our brains are complex machines and memories become jumbled and confused over time. Our brains will sometimes mix up memories or try to compensate when we've truly forgotten something by filling in the details with things that seem logical. Any good police detective can tell you that eyewitness testimony can vary wildly from the truth. On top of that, people tend to be highly susceptible to suggestion as well. So if I were to ask you if you recall the Monopoly guy having a monocle, many of you may automatically fill in that detail in your imaginations, even though the Monopoly guy never wore one. But simply because I suggested it, along with the idea that a monocle is something we stereotypically associate with cartoonish levels of wealth, suddenly many people will swear that he always wore one. But even though most skeptics will say that the most logical explanation for the Mandela Effect is that we all just have crappy memories, many believers in the simulation theory have proposed that these Mandela Effects are actually moments where the computer code has been rewritten. Only for some reason, some people still remember things the way they were. Of course, these things all make for some interesting theories. But is there any other proof that the simulation is real? Well, maybe. You may have watched some Glitch in the Matrix videos on the internet where people film things that just plain don't make sense. Or perhaps you've even experienced them personally. Things like seeing planes and birds hanging frozen in the sky or objects appearing to vanish into thin air. Think of that moment when you lost your car keys even though you're positive you left them where you thought you did. There are plenty of videos you can find on the internet where reality just plain doesn't seem right. Now if any of these clips were scenes out of a video game you'd say the game was glitching. But this is supposed to be real life. But faulty memories and strange videos on the internet aren't enough proof for actual scientists and mathematicians. But that's okay because there are a number of scientists and mathematicians who have put forth what they see as actual evidence. We are living in a simulation. Max Tegmark is a cosmologist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he points to the fact that the universe appears to be based on mathematical laws as the best evidence of simulation theory. Laws that function more like the rules of a computer game. In Tegmark's view, the mathematical laws that govern our universe are probably not the only ones possible. It's possible that if we are in just one of many simulations being run at the same time, then these other universes would have their own different mathematical laws that only applied there. James Gates, a theoretical physicist at the University of Maryland, said in an interview in Scientific American that he would like to be able to simply write off people like Max Tegmark as crazy. But even he can't explain why he keeps coming across what appears to be error-correcting computer code while researching quarks, electrons, and supersymmetry. In 2017, a group of researchers at the University of Washington proved that they could embed malicious computer code into physical strands of DNA. Their intent was to show that computers used for gene sequencing were vulnerable to cyber attacks. But the fact that they were able to add malicious code to the actual DNA itself may point to the possibility that we are all just ones and zeros in some elaborate computer simulation. But not all scientists are in agreement. Lisa Randall, a theoretical physicist at Harvard, thinks the odds that we are living in a simulation stands at about zero. Randall simply can't wrap her head around why anyone would bother trying to simulate us. She thinks the real life just isn't that interesting. But this kind of thinking ignores the possibility of video games like The Sims or Civilization. The fact is, people, or at least we simulated humans, love role-playing as other people. Or, 
Perhaps that's just how we're programmed to think. Michio Kako, the famous theoretical physicist, doesn't believe in the simulation theory either. That's because he says based on current technology, there simply aren't enough atoms in the universe to build the RAM necessary to create such a massive simulation. Okay, but going back to what we discussed earlier, in that case, maybe we don't generate the entire universe all at once. Maybe you are the only real player in this fictional universe, and the simulation only needs enough processing power to generate the data you can directly see or feel. And the parts of the universe that you can't see never get rendered until you need them. That's how modern open-world video games work. So why wouldn't simulated reality work that way as well? In 2014, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics connected 8,000 computers to create a 350 million light-year simulation of our universe, which they then digitally aged to over 13 billion years. If scientists from Harvard were able to do that a decade ago, Think of what our future descendants will be able to create with computers a hundred years from now, or a thousand, or a hundred thousand. Back in 1965, Intel co-founder Gordon Moore proposed what is now known as Moore's Law, in which computing power doubles approximately every 18 months. Over the last few years, that law appears to have slowed down, but it has never stopped altogether. Although some computer scientists are now claiming that Moore's Law is becoming obsolete, but it's impossible to predict the future of computers. As it stands currently, the only limit computing power appears to have are the materials these thinking machines are made of. Computer manufacturers are now turning away from the silicon chips of old and looking toward things like graphene-based transistors, which are only one carbon atom thick and more conductive than any other known material. Today, even the most powerful conventional computer still uses ones and zeros assigned to each bit. But quantum computing uses quantum bits, or qubits, which can be a 1, a 0, or both at the same time, which could potentially expand computing power exponentially. We've already talked a little bit about the idea that DNA could be used to store data. Well, some scientists are studying ways to combine computing with the building blocks of humanity. Some researchers believe we could meet the entire world's data storage needs for a year by embedding all that data into a cubic meter of powdered E. coli DNA. Then there's neurotrophic technology. The goal of this field of study is to create a computer that mimics the architecture of the human brain to achieve a human level of problem solving. By now, you've probably encountered some form of AI, whether it's in the form of chat GPT or generative imagery or so on. But even though some of those AIs may seem scarily smart, they're still not as smart as we humans. At least not yet. Believers in simulation theory think they may have even already found the pixel-sized building blocks of this simulated universe. The Planck length is the scale by which classical ideas about gravity and space-time cease to apply, giving way to quantum effects. In other words, the quantum of length is the smallest measurement of length with any real meaning. It's also the size of what simulation believers say is the equivalent of a single bit of information in this simulated reality. Probably one of the biggest pieces of evidence that simulation theory is real is the simple fact that no one can disprove it. But that's a double-edged sword because at the same time there's no conclusive evidence to prove it either. And any evidence one way or the other might actually be part of the simulation, so you may not be able to trust it anyway. One place where we can look for evidence that we are all living in a simulation comes to us from quantum physics. One of the most well-documented quantum physics experiments ever conducted is the double-slit experiment. 
The double slit is a cornerstone of quantum physics, revealing the fundamental nature of particles and the strange behavior they exhibit on a quantum scale. In 1801, Thomas Young became the first person to conduct a version of this experiment. Ever since, the double slit experiment has become one of the most iconic and perplexing demonstrations of quantum mechanics. At its core, the double slit experiment investigates the dual nature of particles, which can exhibit both particle-like and wave-like properties. This duality is a central concept in quantum mechanics where particles like electrons, protons, and even larger molecules can behave like both tiny particles and waves of probability. The setup of the experiment is relatively simple. Imagine a barrier with two narrow slits cut into it. Behind this barrier, there's a screen where particles, typically electrons or photons, are directed. When these particles are shot toward the barrier with the two slits, they should behave as particles, each traveling through one of the slits and hitting the screen directly behind the slits, creating two distinct bands. However, the truly mind-bending part of the experiment comes when we observe what happens when particles are sent through the slits one at a time. Instead of producing two bands as expected, they generate a unique interference pattern on the screen. This pattern resembles the sort of pattern you'd see if you were to shine light through two slits onto a wall, resulting in a series of alternating light and dark bands. If you can imagine what a series of ripples on water look like when they intersect one another, then you'll have a pretty good idea what this wave pattern looks like. The interference pattern suggests that the particles are behaving as waves, not particles. Waves exhibit interference patterns when they overlap, and this is exactly what's happening here. Each particle is behaving as a wave of probability, passing through both slits simultaneously and interfering with itself. As a result, when these waves overlap on the screen, they create this interference pattern. The real mystery deepens when we try to observe what's going on, though. When we place detectors or other measuring devices at the slits and try to determine which slit a particle passes through, something really weird happens. The interference pattern disappears, and the particles start behaving like individual particles again, forming two distinct bands on the screen. It's almost like something knows it's being observed. This phenomenon is known as the collapse of the wave function. It suggests that the act of measurement or observation somehow forces the particle to choose a definite state, either behaving as a particle or a wave, but not both simultaneously. There have been lots of theories put forth why the particles would behave this way. One potential explanation that's been put forth by proponents of simulation theory is that there is some higher power working behind the scenes to make the particles act this way. That's because one of the only ways you can make sense of the particles behaving in such a manner is that there must be some invisible hand that allows them to defy the laws of physics as we know them. Simulation theory also provides an interesting explanation for all sorts of paranormal phenomena. Ghosts? Maybe they're not disembodied spirits. They're glitches in the program, or even non-player characters that haven't fully loaded yet. UFOs are another example. Maybe UFOs don't obey the laws of physics, because they are programmed not to. The oddities surrounding the double-slit experiment make a compelling case that there may be some advanced supercomputer programmer calling the shots behind the scenes. You could even describe the superprogrammer who exists outside of space and time as God which opens up its own philosophical and religious can of worms. 
At the same time, there's a lot about quantum mechanics that throws a monkey wrench into the simulation hypothesis. If this reality were indeed a simulation, it would imply that the creators went out of their way to make so many other aspects of quantum mechanics appear as inherently random as possible. It's like simulating a game of dice but secretly rigging them to roll differently each time. The principle of Occam's razor advises us to prefer the simplest explanation that fits the facts. In the case of the simulation hypothesis, sure, it's technically possible. But positing that we're living in a simulation created by superintelligent beings introduces more complexity than it eliminates. Imagine if you discovered that your life's purpose was just to entertain some cosmic gamer. It's not exactly a flattering picture of deities or advanced beings. Most of us would prefer to believe in gods who have better things to do than watch us bumble our way through our existence, whether it's through mundane tasks or existential crises. This also opens the door for some major ethical quandaries. If we are all characters in some cosmic video game, what does that say about ethics? Are the beings running the simulation responsible for our suffering? Can we hold them accountable for our poor life choices? It's a philosophical minefield that challenges our notions of morality. Let's face it, if we are living in a simulation, then it sure seems like some alien kid from the future is messing with the fabric of society to see just how far they can push things. From the pandemic to climate change to politics to wars being fought all around the world, it can sometimes feel like everything is breaking down around us. This also takes the matter of free will out of our hands. This is an age-old belief that dates back to the Calvinists, that we humans are all just puppets following God's predestined plan for us all. In many ways, the simulation hypothesis is just a substitute for these same religious arguments. For after all, what would this alien computer programmer who is in charge of everything and who couldn't reprogram us in an instant be, other than God? But to believe in the simulation hypothesis, it means you have to give up on your sense of autonomy. After all, if life is just one big video game, then why bother trying to change things? Why should any of us make an effort to improve the world and fix the problems we have? It's a choice between accepting that the world is the way it is because we made it that way, and taking the steps needed to make things better, or just waiting around for it all to collapse, and hoping the big computer programmer in the sky hits the reset switch. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Donna, Christopher, Paul, and Natasha for signing up and helping support the show. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the regular episodes, only fun size. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in the podcasting charts and helps spread the good word about the show to more listeners like you. Currently, we're on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else throughout this simulated podcasting universe. If you're looking for more content like we do here, you can also find us on our YouTube channel, Dark Chronicles. We also post short-form videos over on Instagram and TikTok as well. If you're interested in checking us out elsewhere, I'll put links in the show notes for there as well. Besides that, you can find us on Twitter, which I still refuse to call X, and on our Facebook page. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can also listen to our show. Feel free to drop us a line through any of those places as well. 
You can also send us an old-fashioned email to conspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing, or send us show topic requests. I love hearing from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.